I am here at the lectern and not at the pulpit for communications technology reasons that you just really don't want to hear the details of. But, <laughs> but basically, you know, in the church, people do things and you say, what does that mean? Well, this doesn't mean anything. So. <laughs> This is my last turn at bat doing a sermon as part of filling in uh, for, for your, your priest as they are on, on sabbatical. Do not worry, that does not mean I'm going to be swinging for the fences, nothing worse than a preacher trying to impress. But I just did want to take this opportunity to say thank you to Dean Richard and thank you St. John's uh, for, the, for the blessing of doing this ministry. It has invited me into um, a, a location. It has given me a perspective where I have been able to see all of the, your clergy team and, and your lay staff and all, and all sorts of leaders uh, within the congregation. I've been able to see they're bringing their very diverse, remarkably diverse gifts and talents received from the Holy Spirit, bringing them together into the mission and ministry of St. John's, which is a beautiful thing. And I just need to say it's the gifts and talents that they bring aren't just that this person is able to sing and this person is able to um, uh, create service booklets, etc. It's who they are. It's, it's the people, people bringing themselves into this ministry. And it's been a, a blessing to be able to get this perspective. But to, to the business of today, for my money, the four most important stories in the Gospels are the birth, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and this one, the conversion of Jesus. Now, some may not like me saying that Jesus needed to be converted. But we all need to be converted over and over and over. And the beautiful thing about Jesus wasn't that he was born having figured it all out, but that Jesus had the openness and the courage to be converted. So let's face up to this story the way the Bible tells it. At the beginning of this lesson, Jesus is callous and blatantly racist. When the Canaanite mother pleads for him to heal her daughter, he tells her to get lost. When she won't go away, he calls her a dog because she is the wrong race, wrong religion, wrong nationality. And this isn't a fluke. It wasn't just a bad day. Jesus had been saying this all along up to this point, when he had sent his disciples out on the great mission to spread the gospel, he told them to go nowhere among the Gentiles or the Samaritans. The good news is for Jews only. Jesus' mission was to a community, and a community is a good thing, but there's a dark side to community, tribalism, us versus them mentality. In his book, The Righteous Mind, by Jonathan Haidt, 
social psychologist. He teaches us that evolution has hardwired tribalism into us. We know who our people are and who they are not. Compassion operates within the boundaries of the tribe. Think America first. Now, Canaanites and Jews had been enemies for centuries. And Jesus the Jew had no use for Canaanites. Then along came this woman like Rosa Parks, who was just too tired to stand up for segregation. This foreign mother was too desperate to save her daughter, too desperate to let things like race and religion stand in the way. She needed help. So she persisted until she broke Jesus out of his tribal mold and he healed his first Gentile, but not his last. This lesson, by the way, echoes the story in Exodus where Moses talks God out of destroying Israel. And Exodus 32:14 says, the Lord repented of the evil that he thought to do. Just so, Jesus repented of tribalism in the face of this foreign mother's faith and love. And if she hadn't converted Jesus, we would never have the parable of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus shows us a man of the wrong religion, wrong race, wrong nationality, showing us what morality looks like. We would never have the Great Commission sending the disciples to preach the gospel, this time to all nations. That epistle lesson we heard from Paul to the Romans would never have been written because the gospel would not have reached the Gentile Romans. So if it weren't for this anonymous Canaanite woman, you and I would be sacrificing goats to Jupiter. Now, like Jesus, we know our tribes, people who get us because they're like us. We define who's like us according to a lot of different standards. It could be race or gender or educational level or political ideology, just to name a few. We all have our tribes. But today, our tribes keep getting smaller and smaller. Social media and partisan news networks have us living on different planets. The walls separating factions grow higher and thicker so that in each decade, our natural circle of care keeps shrinking, and that shrinks our very humanity. Now, don't get me wrong. We need our tribes. We all need to feel readily understood sometimes. But if we don't venture outside the tribal boundaries, and if we look at the other tribes with disrespect, there is a spiritual price to be paid. Philosopher Emmanuel Levinas 
said, only caring attention to others. Now we need to underline that word others three times. Others. Attention to others, not similars. Others. That's what sets us free from the prison of self. We need interesting, interested, curious conversation with people who are as different from us as possible to draw us outside ourselves, to wake us up to what Jesus called abundant life. Ethics professor Martha Nussbaum calls it participatory imagination, engaging the imagination to see the world through someone else's eyes. And when we imagine someone else's point of view, in addition to our own, that makes our world larger. Our life grows more expansive, as Jesus said, abundant. God calls us outside ourselves. Now the Bible teaches us that all people are the image of God. So holy life is a perspective. It's looking at each other reverently. The place to seek God is in each other's faces. St. John said, if we can't love our neighbor who we have seen, how can we love God who we have not seen? Bishop Tutu said that if we actually realize who each other are, we'd be genuflecting and crossing ourselves in each other's presence. But when social fragmentation sets us against each other, sometimes it's hostility, sometimes as irritable indifference, sometimes as a kind of contempt, you know how those people are, that cuts us off from God. It confines our lives closer and closer to the border of our own skin until we can't breathe. The fewer people we admit into our circle of care and the more like us they have to be to get inside that circle, the more our lives shrivel Concentrating our care into narrower and narrower fellowships crunches us like a, tra a trash compactor. Tribalism, my friends, is psychosocial inbreeding. And just as biological inbreeding produces genetic defects, psychosocial inbreeding produces pathological politics. Levinas, Nussbaum, and Hannah Arendt all agreed that tribalism is the root of authoritarianism. Feminist theologian Catherine Keller defines evil as the denial of related, relatedness. We overcome evil through interested, caring engagement with people outside 
our natural circle of care. Because life is connectedness. The more we connect, the more we live. My favorite 20th century theologian, Albert Einstein. Einstein said, a human being is part of the universe. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings, as something separated from the rest. This, Einstein says, is a delusion, a prison, restricting us to our personal desires and affection for a few people nearest us. But our task, Einstein says, must, to be, must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circles of compassion to embrace all creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Life doesn't flourish in the safe, familiar confines of like-minded cliques. Life grows in Dr. Einstein's ever-widening circles of compassion. Amen.